It's a Wonderful Life. I, uh, every time I see that, I think about uh, when Kim or myself bite our lip and we lick our lip and taste blood. We always, out of just out of reflex action, we go, my lip's be bleeding, Bert. My lip's bleeding. But um, that is not why I played that clip. The reason why I played that clip was because the message today is called, It's a Wonderful Life. And George Bailey is a man who does not understand the value of his life and begins to think and ask, and ask the question, would it be better if I had never been born? And as we conclude this series of Who's Your One, today we want to focus on how important an individual life is, how important it is for each of us to understand that a wonderful life is, especially in the kingdom of God, is determined by God. It is not something we define for ourselves, but something he defines for us. I was asked this uh, yesterday. I was asked, they said, are you going to have a difficult time preaching with nobody responding to your quotes and also... Nobody laughing at your jokes. And I think I can speak for Baptist preachers everywhere that we've been preparing for this for a very long time. Thank you. Today we're going to look at the life of Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His life is one that kind of goes into the shadows, one that's not paid attention to a lot. And in... John chapter 1, verse 40. John chapter 1, verse 40. The Word of God says this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Peter's brother was one of the least known of the disciples. Yet, here is this profound moment, and I love this part where it says, He, found, he first found his own brother. He first found his own brother. His first reflex in knowing about Jesus was to go to the person who he loved, someone he wanted to know about Jesus, and simply share who Christ was. That made a ripple effect that forever transformed the kingdom of God. Because if there's one person we do know about, if you don't know who Andrew is, we know who Peter is. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, God, for the grace that you show us. Lord, as we come to you today, and, and Lord, as Daniel said earlier, we're scattered about. Father, we, we've gone in different directions. We've uh, been secluded to our homes. So many people have been quarantined. Father, but you are with us. Lord, this is not 
the way you meant for church to be. This is not the way you meant for us to worship. This is not the way you meant for your word to be proclaimed. But Lord, I'm grateful that we do have these means, that we do have the ability to continue to proclaim your word, to continue to worship through some type of connectedness, even in these times. And Father, may may you bring your healing power not only into our nation, but into our world. And Lord, remove this virus from us. Bring healing to those who are suffering from it. Father, restore a sense of normalcy, but may we appreciate today. May we appreciate, Lord, how much it means for us to be able to come together and to worship together. And may we long for that day once again and not take it for granted. And Father, today as we go through this message and see the importance of us in our work for you and in serving you, Lord, may you speak to us through your word where we are. And Father, may we become very focused on the mission you have given to us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of background on Andrew. I mentioned that he was the least known, but he's ordinarily just in the background, and he was a guy who was learned, who was one who reached thousands of people. And there is a um, well. Let's look back in in John chapter one, verse thirty-five. So we look at his story. John begins by saying, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. So you have at the beginning people who are following John the Baptist and hear John the Baptist say, Look, behold the Lamb of God, here is the Messiah. And they go and follow him immediately immediately believing and then go to uh, follow him. And, and it's this zeal, this eagerness to follow Christ. This, I'm going to just jump in head first that kind of typifies Andrew's character and gives us kind of a, an idea of who he is. So think of this, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now we know about Peter, James, and John we hear about all the time, but Andrew is, is one of the first one who comes. His name means manly. There are only nine times that he is referenced, and it's usually just in passing. He lived his life in the shadows of his better-known brother, Peter. But it's Andrew who introduced Peter to Jesus. Now, it took place a few months after Jesus' baptism. Look back in verse 29. We're going backwards in John chapter 1 to kind of lay down some groundwork here. Verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. 
After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist has established this is the Messiah. Andrew is there with him, hears it happening, and then once John points it out, Andrew is one of the first to follow him. He didn't keep that good news to himself. He went and found the one person that he wanted to share it with the most, his brother. And that brings us to our first point. He saw the value of individual people. He saw the value of individual people. Behind everyone who reaches thousands, there is one who reaches one. Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul. He didn't set out thinking, how am I going to reach five people a week for the rest of my life? He didn't say, how am I going to reach 100 people every week for the, or 100 people a month or 500 people a year or 1,000 people over the next 10 years or whatever. He just went to reach one person. So when we gave you those names and or you, we asked you to think of a name, we said, think of a name, a person, somebody who's your one, and would you pray for that person for 30 days? And so you committed to pray for those people for 30 days, and I, I pray that you are continuing to pray for them praying for the opportunity to share with them, and you probably have already realized it's not as easy as it's cut out to be, that it's a little bit more challenging than you might have first have thought, or they might not be receptive to what you have to say, or you're having trouble finding the right words to communicate. But the key is that you understand that you have something that needs to be shared, and God is going to bring people into your life who you need to share it with. Not thinking about everybody who needs to hear, but just one person you need to hear who needs to hear and God and I had so many people that came to me and said well, I don't have a one I don't know one and they'll say well there's this one or this person and it's like don't just cast that one aside if it's a friend or a brother or a cousin or a child or a grandchild or an uncle or an aunt or a or a, a grandparent or whatever the case whoever it is if you know that they need to hear the gospel then that make that your one and don't leave that one until you know they've heard the gospel. Until you know that you can say, when people say, hey, does this person a believer? And you can say, yes or no, or I don't know. But then you can follow with saying, all I know is I shared the truth about who Jesus is with them. I laid it with them, and now it's on. I know that they know. And that's really all we're asking is, do you know that they know? But don't lose a sense of the value of an individual person. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, just one person. He later is going to bring this little boy to Jesus with, a, with five loaves and two fishes, just one kid. But every time he does something, he does something amazing. I, you know, I think sometimes we think that the kingdom of God is built through this getting everybody to reach like a certain number of people. Like if we get every member of our church to reach 50 people over the course of their life, wow, how amazing that would be. And then every new person that comes, all those 50 reach 50 and all those 50. But that's not how the kingdom of God has grown. 
Typically, what happens is, is we all work toward reaching one person. And you may spend your entire life laboring to reach a person. When missionaries have gone to India, people like William Carey and Adoniram Judson who went to Burma and, and, uh, and other missionaries who have gone to the world, they, they labored and labored and labored to reach one person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now they shared, they sowed their seed, they shared the gospel with lots of people, but saw no converse, but they labored and labored and labored trying to reach one person. And what happens so often is that God will use, it's, it's kind of like if we were, say we were going to dig for, or dig, drill for oil, and we had to do it by hand, and so we were all just pounding and pounding, and I'd wear out, and you'd come and replace me, and pound and pound, and we all had, all of us, thousand people, just pounding and pounding, trying to drill and drill and drill and drill. One person at some point is going to hit that, and a gusher is going to flow, but it's going to be on the backs of all the work that all those previous people have put forth. They didn't do it themselves. They were just the one who was there when it all was released and set free. And that's what the gospel is like sometimes. Sometimes I will share with someone and you will share with someone and so many other people will share with someone and we all communicate with someone and we don't see any fruit in that and don't see any fruit in that. But because we are laboring toward the same end, God is using us to eventually wear down and wear down and wear down. And, and eventually these missionaries who were in these places sharing the gospel, a person was converted, and then there were multiple people converted, and then there was a flood of conversions from people. And that has been how it's been through the, the body of Christ for all time. Peter was the one who preached at Pentecost, and thousands of people got saved. But it was Andrew who reached Peter. I don't know if you know who Dwight... Moody is, D.L. Moody, but he was a great preacher in Chicago, reached thousands of people for Christ, and if you do know who D.L. Moody is, I'm going to bet you probably don't know who Edward Kimball is. Well, Edward Kimball was the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. Kimball was anything but bold. He was timid, soft-spoken. He went to that shoe store frightened, trembling, and unaware of whether he had the courage to confront this young man with the gospel. Moody, on the other hand, was crude and obviously illiterate. And Kimball trembled in his boots as he recalled the incident. Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. Kimball said, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton Shoe Store. He said, when I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to just go during business hours. And I thought, maybe my, maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. And then I went away. The other clerks asked who I, who I was, that, and when they learned that they might taunt Moody and make fun of him when they find out that his Sunday school teacher had been there at work. So he said, I was pondering over this, whether I should go in, whether I shouldn't go in. How will this affect him? Will I mess up his life? He said, well, I was thinking about it, but I passed the store without even noticing it. 
He said, and then when I realized I'd gone past the door, he said, I, make it a, I made a determined effort. He said, I made a dash for the door and went inside. He just says, I was trying to get it over with. He found Moody in the stockroom and spoke to him. He said, with limping words, that's how he describes it. Later he says, I never could remember what I said, something about Jesus and his love, and that's all I remember. He said it was an extremely weak appeal, but it was then and there that Moody gave his heart to Jesus Christ. So this very lame presentation of gospel resulted in a man coming to know Jesus Christ, D.L. Moody, who has testified about Jesus to tens and thousands of people. He led C.T. Studd, the great pioneer missionary, William Chapman, who himself became a well-known evangelist to Christ. Moody founded the Moody Bible Institute and has trained, that has trained thousands for ministry. And it all began with a Sunday school teacher who was just faithful to go and share the gospel with one person. Andrew's thought to be maybe the beginning of mission, the mission movement. In John chapter 12, we see him mentioned. John chapter, John chapter 12, verse 20. It says, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And that's all we get. But look at what's happening in here. There were some Greeks, some non-Jew people, or possibly some Hellenistic Jews, who went to worship at the festival and they asked to see Jesus and all he did was connect them to Jesus. But that was his focus, that was his place. That's, he was just simply always ready, always prepared. And, and, and all God is looking for is he's looking for people who when other people are desiring to see Jesus, that we're ready and available to connect them. But when we are distracted and when we are not thinking of the value of that individual in that moment, we're not thinking of the importance of that particular person. When we're thinking, let's reach hundreds of people instead of just reaching one person, we lose a moment when we could be sharing who Jesus is. Andrew knew the value of an individual. He also saw the value of insignificant gifts. He saw the value of insignificant gifts. I saw a meme online. I know. I I hope you've had uh, seen your fair share of memes online about the uh, virus. Um, I've seen about. I've had about 150,000 people send me things about toilet paper. Uh, I've had more jokes about toilet paper than I will ever care to have uh, in my lifetime. I even got a song this morning about toilet paper. Uh, but it did remind me that uh, I did live through a time in my life when we couldn't afford toilet paper, and I didn't see it as the worst crisis we'd ever experienced in our lives. Um, but we have toilet paper in case anybody needs it, in case you're watching and you're out there and you're thinking if that's something you're suffering from. If your prayer this morning was, please, God, give us a roll of toilet paper, we have toilet paper here. If you would like to come to the church and get a roll sometime this week, um, that's Daniel's, really only, Daniel's only job we have for him this week is to just hand out rolls of toilet paper to people. I wish he was here to hear that. But this little meme had a little boy talking about how he gave six, he was seven years old, had $600 in savings, and he took his $600 in savings, and he did, and he used it to create care packages 
for elderly people in his community and also feed about 90 college students. And the purpose of the meme, it was then showing his picture and then it showed a bunch of millionaires in their whiny states about how awful their life is because of their um, situation and said, here's, here's, a, here's a boy with $600 and all that he's doing in the midst of this crisis and here are all these millionaires and obviously not doing anything except complaining about their own situation. And it does show us it's not, it's not always about how much money we have. It's about seeing what we do have and saying, God, here's what I have and I'm going to make it available to you. Do what you can with it. Do something amazing with it. I remember um, when I was in high school, we, um, one of the things I'd always dreamed of is that I would get to be, we had a student council and, and, um, and we had a state office, state president, and I wanted to be state president, but I was told, uh, when I became aware of it, I was told it was already too late. You have to run when you're a sophomore. And so I'd hoped that we could maybe get a sophomore from our high school to run. And so uh, we began recruiting somebody, and we got somebody to run. We didn't have any money. We didn't have a budget. And so I uh, went and wrote down a little slogan on a, a piece of paper with a magic marker, took it, and ran a 1,000 copies of it, took it in my hand, and that's all we went with, a stack of single-color <laughs> pieces of paper, and we went. When we got there, the other people who were campaigning had all types of banners and, and all types of pens and buttons and pencils and all these different things that they'd all purchased and all this amazing stuff that they created uh, in order to run the campaigns for their candidates, for their school's candidates. And all we had were these sheets of paper. And so we just we took and handed these sheets of paper to people and said, hey, would you vote for our candidate and so forth. Well, it turns out our candidate won. And it was because it wasn't about all the things of paper or all the fancy things that they had. It wasn't about the fact that we had these amazing sheets of paper or an amazing slogan. It was just the fact that we made a personal contact with every person and asked them to vote and so forth and weren't relying upon these fancier things. A total budget of less than $10 won that campaign. And it may helped me to realize, as Andrew did, the value of insignificant gifts. Look in John chapter 6. An even better story. In verse 8. Now, Jesus has already asked his disciples to get something, food for the people. And Philip has already told him that there's not enough. He looks at the, the there's no way we can do this. We can't afford to do this. It says in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, now I'll just stop there. Have you ever been somebody else's brother or somebody else's something where you, I, I remember when I first got married, Kim's maiden name is Oliver, and I used to get introduced as Kim Oliver's husband because she was more well-known than I was. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the shadow of somebody else, um, somebody's brother, somebody's son, somebody's child. But that's, that's Andrew. He's not, it's not Andrew, it's Andrew, oh, you don't know who Andrew is, it's Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? What are they for so many? 
They look at the scope of the situation and think there's no way that this will be enough to take care of everything that needs to be done. We are in a situation right now that looks like there is no way we could possibly have the resources. That's all we hear in the news is the scope of the problem is so we don't have enough beds in our hospitals. We don't have enough masks to provide for people. We're running out of toilet paper. We're running out of hand sanitizer. We're running out of all these things, medical supplies. We wouldn't have enough. Uh, we won't have the ability or the resources or the manpower or the money or whatever to do any of these things. This is the way the world thinks. The way the world thinks and the way the world is is a, is a sense of panic because they are completely reliant upon the things they possess themselves. And sadly, that itself is an illusion because even what they think they have, they can't put their faith in because that may not last. It takes one fire, it takes one disaster, it takes one turn of a stock market or whatever and the things that people think they have that they're putting confidence in are gone. And whenever you put your trust or your faith in a thing and that thing is gone, then you have no faith. You have no, nothing to trust in. But when you're, And that's what's happening with the disciples here is they're, they're seeing the problem and they're seeing the need and, and they're thinking, we don't have enough to take care of this. We don't have enough to deal with this. We don't have enough to fix this. And Jesus is looking at them. Do you not realize that I, the Lord God, am standing right here with you? I am the one who takes care of you each and every day. I'm the one who provides everything. Jesus took a moment, even when, uh, when there was a widow giving her offering. And, and um, well, let's look at that in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. This reminds me of when I was preaching at a Baptist church one time and, and I asked people to turn their Bible and I could only hear my Bible turning and yet we were in a full sanctuary of people and they were all just staring at me. Um, I'm grateful. I'm hoping that their Bible's turning, flipping somewhere. At least you can hear the sound of fingers scrolling across phones um, as we turn to that page. Luke chapter 21, 1 through 4. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Now there's something interesting happening here. In that, yes, she did give everything that she had. And, and I want you to think, this is where our minds go to. Our minds are going to the amount that she put in. The amount that she put in. As if there is something that is, that in the giving part of it, that it's like, that is about us, that I'm doing something that's important as a ritual. I mean, I just take my money and I give money and therefore God is blessed by it. This is how the world thinks. If I give to somebody, then God is pleased that I am a giving person. But what Jesus is sharing with us is he's, he's saying, when you give, 
whatever you give, it is an act of faith and trust that God is going to take the gift and now he is going to do something greater than ourselves with it. That it's not about that he that I'm giving just to impress God with my giving because you can't impress God with your giving. For one, he already owned it before you gave it. But what you are doing is saying, here, take this and use it for your glory. Take this and use it for your glory. I'm not going to use it for myself. I'm going to trust you. She is literally giving everything that she has. Now, think about that for a second. How's she going to eat? How's she going to pay her rent? How's she going to take care of whatever other people? How's she going to give her grandson a present for his birthday? How... How is Jesus saying it's great that now she is completely impoverished and has nothing with which to even support herself? That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying so great is her faith. So great is her trust in me that she can take her gift. See, because other people are giving and it's not the size of their gift. It's their amount of faith. Meaning that they're only giving enough, holding this back. I'm going to give this, but I'm going to hold this back because this is what I need to live on. This is what I need to survive. Just like the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish. It's his lunch. This is what I need to eat. I don't have another lunch. This is my lunch. And so I hold on to it and I don't want to share it. And Jesus is saying, these people gave Everything, knowing that I'll take what they give, take care of them, and then use what they give to take care of everybody. And that's what he does all the time. Our lives are, it's not about how much I put in a plate. It's not about how much I write a check out for. It's not how much I put in the envelope. It's about that I can make everything I have available to him. I can, I used to, people say, I used to say, well, we could all go to the mission field and share the gospel. You know, if we all left, if we all went to the mission field, we still could use more missionaries. And somebody would come up to me almost every time after a service and they would say, we couldn't all quit our jobs and go to the mission field. We couldn't all do that. As if to say, if we all did that, if we all gave everything we had, if we all sold out everything, then everything would collapse and who would support the church and how would God, how would, as if we are the ones supporting the church, as if we are the ones sustaining the world, as if we are the ones who are making all this work. This is why Jesus rebuked his disciples because that's how they were thinking. We're doing this. We're making this happen. I have to go and do this. What God is looking for, he's looking for obedient people. Now, if God asked, now that doesn't mean we all quit our jobs without asking God if he wants us to quit our jobs. But if God led us all to quit our jobs, we're still okay. Because he is the one who takes care of us. He is the one who sustains us. And I've pointed out this before. 
We're trusting that already for all eternity. Nobody sits around thinking when we get to heaven, how are we going to make it? How are we going to, how am I going to provide for people? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to clothe myself? How am I going to eat for all eternity? What am I going to do? What kind of job am I going to have? It's not like we go to God and we're, I don't see people on their deathbed going, praying, God, please, would you send me a list of jobs in heaven so I could know and work out with employers on the other side so I know when I get there, I've got a job so I can sustain myself. I never have people ask them, reach me, grab my hand, say, Pastor, I'm, I'm afraid of dying because I don't know how I'm going to eat in the afterlife. People are like, I'm going to glory. I've got a mansion for me, waiting for me. I'm so glad when all this is gone. It's like, well, when all this is gone, how are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? What are you going to do? Well, God will take care of it. And here's a simple question. Is there another God? Is it a different God who's going to take care of you? Is it a different God who's going to provide for you all for all eternity? No. It's the same God. And so if he's going to do it forever, he's going to do it now. He is the same God doing this. And this is what he was telling his disciples. What he's saying about this woman. It's like she gets it. She understands. She understands that she can give everything believing that I'm going to give her more. I'm going to take care of her. Now, it's not like she's going, I'm going to put my last two pennies in, and tomorrow I'm going to get four pennies because God's going to bless me. That's not what she's doing. She's saying, Lord, I, I make this available to you, and I trust that you will use it for the glory of your kingdom, and I trust that you will take care of me out of your abundance. And Jesus is saying, that's right. That's exactly right. That's what I will do. When we are faced with situations like we are, if you get sick, if you get, uh, if you get uh, contaminated, or you, or you lose everything, or you're laid off, or whatever the case, whatever the world throws at you, Jesus is saying, "Don't worry. I'm going to give you what you need." in order to do what I ask you to do while you're here. And then when you're done here, then I will bring you home. And then I will give you all the riches of the world without any worry of sin or loss or death forever. God's ability is in no way limited by the size of our gifts or our abilities. Oswald Chambers says it is a false sense of humility when you and I say, I would love to, to do that, but I, I'm just not able. Because what you're literally saying is, I would love to do that, but my God is too small. My God's not capable of making me capable of doing that. Jesus said, whatever you need, I will give it to you. Whatever I ask you to do, I will empower you to do. I will give you everything you need to do it. That means whatever he asks you to do. 
If he asks you to teach, he'll, he'll empower you to teach. Now, there are some people who come to me and say, I feel like God wants me to be a teacher. And then I listen to him teach, and I say, I humbly disagree. <laughs> I don't think God is asking you to be a teacher, because if God was, he'd be empowering you to teach, and you don't have the ability to teach. I've had many people come to me, and Daniel can relate to this. I've had people come and say, I think God's calling me to sing. And then I listen to him sing. It's like, I humbly disagree. I don't think God's calling you to sing because he's not empowering you to sing. It's not just us saying, I want to do this. It's when God does say he wants to do it, the body of Christ will see the gifts manifested and we'll say, God's given you this gift. He's giving you this. We recognize it. We see it. You have this. Look, as Andrew goes to his boy, he recognizes this boy has something. It's small. It seems insignificant, but he has something. And that's what we do. We go and say, look, this person has this ability, this something. It may be small in the greater scheme of things, but it's something. And we just say, hey, would you make this available to God? Would you let God use you? And when you say yes then God takes it and he does something amazing with it. Something you never would have dreamed he would have done. Something you didn't realize it had the power to do. But you just did it. You just gave it. And God used it to do something awesome with it. The value of insignificant gifts. And lastly, Andrew sees the value of inconspicuous service. Inconspicuous service. I have seen this so many times, and I'm just going to tell you, I I am extremely well aware of anything good that's ever happened in my ministry it was not because of my abilities, not because of my service, but because of the tireless service of so many people behind the scenes to make me look good. And I appreciate that. I mean, I I never wanted to. I have tried at different times to not be the guy on the platform, to not be the face. And I have other people saying, that's you. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your job. So get up there. You, you do the thing. Make the video. Read the script. Preach the message. It's like, okay, I'll do that. But I recognize that that's just my small part. It may seem like a big part, but it's really a small part because there's so much work that goes in behind that people pour in to create moments of ministry. There have been so many times. Uh, years ago, I went and uh, we'd redone this, um, our, our sanctuary. We'd poured into it and had all these people doing this work. And I was taking pictures of them and filming it the whole time or whatever of everybody working and everything and they kept saying no we don't want that we don't want to be seen we don't want to so I put together some while they weren't there I went and filmed myself doing every single job now I didn't I wasn't actually doing the job but I it looked I staged it to where it looked like I was rolling out carpet and and painting the walls and so forth so when we actually did the presentation of the church I thought it would be funny uh, to just show me doing all the work and putting everything together. Now, all these people who said they didn't want to be, <laughs> I did. And then I captured, to add insult to injury, I captured a lot of footage of them when they were sitting down or eating a sandwich or drinking something. And so I would, and then I would just show clips of them doing that. They didn't think it was so funny. They said that it didn't matter, that they didn't want to be known for what they were doing, but they obviously didn't like the opposite of that either. Um, but the idea is that there, I, I'm very well aware that I've had deacon. I've had, I've had 
uh, deacons, and, and I can think of particular deacons throughout, in every church, who do so many things. And not, not just deacons, but other people behind the scenes, people, prayer warriors, people who are, who are always praying and who took prayer requests and so forth, and who, are, who I know when this person got saved that, that this person had been praying for them, or this person in the hospital, that person had been praying for them, people that never knew. There was a ministry I became aware of years ago about this online service where there was a testimony being shared about this girl in Saudi Arabia who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ online. And there was a person talking to her online when her father broke into her room. Her brother discovered that she was had made a profession of faith and she was praying online with these people. He told her dad and her dad and her brother came and beat her to death. But before she died, there was somebody online, on a computer, at home, in some obscure location somewhere in America, who was praying with her and supporting her and told her story. I wouldn't even know that. We wouldn't even know that girl existed. We wouldn't know she's going to be in the kingdom of God. Except there was some lady who volunteered couple hours, weird time zone. She had free time. And she was asked to be a part of a ministry where you go online and these people from Muslim countries or whatever, websites they can go to, and you can help disciple them online and encourage them just by giving a couple hours of time. You could do something else. But they took that time that they had and used it to talk to people they don't know in a land they've never been to, in a language they don't speak, but using the resources that were available to communicate the love of Jesus Christ. People in obscurity, inconspicuous people. Andrew was one of those kind of people. He is the, the picture of all those who labor quietly in humble places. Look in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, what Paul says. Ephesians 6, 6. Paul says this, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. With every child that I've had who's come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, now my own grandson, every one of them I knew, there were people behind the scenes that nobody else knew. I mean, when people give their testimonies, there's always some name or something that's mentioned or whatever, but I know there were a lot of people who never asked to be mentioned, who were there sharing the love of Christ, reinforcing biblical truths, encouraging them, loving them, teaching them, being a part of what God wanted to do, not looking for something in return, but just simply doing it because that's what needed to be done. And you may be laboring with someone right now trying to share the love of Jesus with them. You may be doing things to help people right now and nobody sees it. But please continue to do it. God sees it. God recognizes it. He recognizes the value. There is a value when we don't mind being hidden as long as the work is being done. In fact, I had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday and was talking about preachers. I there was a video that uh, there's ample videos of preachers on Facebook right now of talking to their churches and so forth. And and uh, I was seeing some friends of mine I knew 
they didn't have the skill to put that video together. And I knew who put the video together for him. And I said, hey, you should have put yourself in the video. I said, you, you never know. The world might be changed if we actually get to see your face. And he says, you know, that's my, not my deal. He says, I'm, I'm more comfortable being behind the scenes, making them look good. And I'm very grateful that so many people do that. To do that. Not people pleasers. Slaves of Christ. They trust in the work of Christ. They believe in the work of Christ. And don't mind being hidden. Tradition has it that Andrew took the gospel north into Russia. Maybe to Scotland. He never preached to multitudes. He never founded any churches. One account says he led a wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ and that her husband was infuriated by it. The husband demanded the wife recant her faith and she refused. So the governor had Andrew crucified. Says he was lashed to the cross instead of nailed in order to prolong his suffering. Tradition says it was an X-shaped cross. And most accounts say this, that as he hung on the cross for two days, he used his time to tell every passerby about Jesus. Now I think about that. And I think about our situation. And I think about how in times like these it's so tempting to focus on ourselves to lose sight of a greater mission. Don't. I, I've had so many people say this is an opportunity for the church to really shine. I had one preacher say, we should have everybody filling our churches to show we're not afraid of the virus and we're not afraid to come together and worship. Now I'm going to chastise him just a little bit. Because I don't think that's what the word is saying. I don't think that's what God is asking of us at all right now. I think what he is asking is, we do have an incredible opportunity to shine. It's not in here. It's out there. It's where you are. It's saying, hey, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter how afraid everybody is getting... We're going to stay focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible opportunity to say, hey, I know you're afraid, but I know how your fears can be taken away. And you can put your faith in Jesus and know that no matter what happens, no matter what a doctor says, no matter what the statistics say, no matter what news reports come out, no matter what governors declare, no matter what happens in your business, no matter what happens anywhere, that you know that Jesus will take care of you forever that is the good news we need to get out when you read the papers right now remember this newspapers sell more papers online services sell more news services sell more advertising when they have more viewership and they have more viewership when they communicate scary things the more the scarier they can make it the more catastrophic they can communicate, the more people read it. We thrive on it. I don't know why we're like that. 
We thrive on bad news. Sells things because we, if we feed fear, fear feeds itself. So, so we read more of it and more of it and more of it. Did you read this? Did you read this? Did you read this? Did you read this? And we get caught in this trap of sharing it. Did you see how this and this number and this and how bad it's going to be? Did you see how bad this is going to be amazingly bad? I used to tell NASCAR people, I said, you don't like to watch races. You like to watch crashes. You get excited when there's a crash. That gets more, much more publicity than the successes. That is not our mission. We are not the New York Times. We are not the Wall Street Journal. We are the church of the living Lord, of Jesus Christ. We have good news to share. It is what makes us different. In a world that is feeding on fear, we feed faith. And we take a message out that the world does not have. And while it may not get as many people to respond, it never has as long as the gospel's been around. It is still what changes lives. What gives people hope for all eternity. Let me ask you this morning. What do you see? We talked about what Andrew saw, but what do you see? When you look at the world and all that's going on, what is it that you see? What is it that God is revealing to you? In your, do you see hope? Do you see opportunity? Do you see the things that God is doing? Do you see how He is moving in our midst? Do you see that He is preparing us for something amazing? Do you see revival beginning to take place? Do you see awakening of people? Do you see people looking, searching, reaching out for something that only we can give them? Ask Christ to give you His vision for your life. Ask Christ to give you His vision for your life. Right now, in your homes, wherever you may be, whoever you may be with, take a moment as we pray and say, Jesus, show me what you want me to see. Pray with me.